Well, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We arrive this evening in this chapter in our week-by-week ministry through this epistle. Let me just read the first 11 verses again. The apostle says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are ye not my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am of you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord? And Cephas, or I only, and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard, and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Who feedeth the flock, and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth not doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that He that ploweth should plow in hope. He that thresheth in hope should be a partaker of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Amen. So reads God's word. The Apostle Paul here now, in this chapter, of course there were no original chapter divisions, as I'm sure you've heard me say, time without number, in this epistle. But thus far... He has been speaking about the very fact that we are the Lord's. He began to tell us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we're no longer our own, and that we belong now to the body of Christ, members of Christ's body, his church. And as we arrive now in this chapter, as we continue to make our way through this epistle this evening, I remind you that Paul here, as we've read, he is speaking about the subject of giving to the Lord and his work. Of course, he spoke before of giving our lives, whether it's in marriage or whether it's singleness. We are the Lord's and we are to serve the Lord. Paul here from verse 1 to the verse 18 is speaking about financial support, our giving for the ministry in the church and for the support of the Lord's work whether it be in the immediate church or whether it be the support of ministers like himself or missionaries. It is the Lord's work and we are the Lord's. Now we might tend to perhaps think that this is a very dry and unspiritual subject because it's dealing with such matters. But uh, let me just challenge that. That's false thinking. This is all very spiritual. Everything that we do as Christians is spiritual. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a reason. And Paul will tell us in chapter 10, whatsoever we do, we do to the glory of God. We do it because God has said it, because he has commanded certain things in Scripture. And we obey by faith. We obey the word of faith. Romans chapter 10 speaks of the word of faith. And we'll speak this evening about the importance of giving. And we might, as I said, tend to think that there's not much gain here spiritually because this is such a practical subject. But as I said, everything now for the Christian is spiritual. Everything is vital. Paul will speak on very important matters here that we need to consider. Now, one of the benefits of 
this systematic, expository, week-by-week ministry, is this. It doesn't allow us to stay clear of difficult passages of Scripture. We are forced, constrained, wonderfully constrained. We don't say that in a negative way. To consider the whole counsel of God when it comes to such subjects. Sometimes this subject is avoided because it is a difficult one. It's certainly a difficult one for the minister because here it is speaking about the minister's support and the support for the work of the Lord. And this could even be perhaps contentious in some churches. And uh, it's not something that we would make this a hobby horse of in the church. We just treat it as it comes naturally through the systematic expository ministry of God's Word. Now, there are some that believe that tithing is not uh, to be practiced in the New Testament. And I wish to challenge that view this evening from Scripture and for what we even see in the New Testament. Some believe that because it's not even spoken of, and it is alluded to, we'll see tonight, it is alluded to in the New Testament that we're not to bring the subject up. But I submit to you it was a given. That's why it's not mentioned. It is alluded to, as we'll see. It was considered a given, and there's nothing in the New Testament that comes up that says that law of tithing is now abolished with the coming of the New Testament. There is nothing whatsoever in the New Testament with regards to that. There is and will be a curse upon a people if they do not give. And I don't wish to try to frighten anyone here this evening, but I want to show you from various passages of Scripture. First of all, in the Old Testament, if you turn with me to the book of Malachi and the chapter 3, and uh, what the Lord says as he speaks, remember Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, and then there is the somewhat 400-year period of silence before the New Testament, and there's not a word, as we'll see tonight, in the New Testament with regards to uh, the abolition or the Ending of tithing. Let us just look, first of all, at this general principle and how failure to do so, those who name the name of the Lord and profess to belong to the body of our Lord, how the Lord does bring a curse but a blessing to those who honor him in their giving. So we're going to look at these principles and then we'll come and see what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with regards to this matter. So first of all, Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, we read, will a man rob God? It's a question, solemn question. Can a man rob God? Have a look. Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? And here's the answer. In tithes, and offerings. So one, it's very clear, can rob God through failure to render to the Lord what is his due. Remember what the Lord Jesus said when the Pharisees and the scribes came up and they said, should we pay taxes? And he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he didn't stop there. He then went on to say, Render to God what is God's. And we read, look at verse 9. Look at the indictment. Wherein the question the people ask, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. And then the Lord says this, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me. Now notice, this withholding tithes and offerings, notice the curse is brought down by God. Even this whole nation, says the Lord. And look at the promise, though. If one obeys, verse 10, 
Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And we'll see what that storehouse is later. That there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So we see God's promised blessing if they obey what he has commanded regarding tithes and offerings. You see, there's a very clear and inseparable connection between the Lord's blessing and the giving of the people, rendering to God, as the Lord Jesus said, what is God's in tithes and in offering. And we know that in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord speaks about almsgiving and our giving to the Lord, and he speaks about fasting and praying and uh, doing those things not to be seen by men, but giving to the Lord. And a failure, as we see here, to do these things unto the Lord will bring God's judgment. Now you notice, if you look at verse 11 of Malachi 3, you see how God will deal with the enemy even in the land. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And that's following on their obedience. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Now friends, it's not as if the Lord needs anything. But one thing we do find, part of our giving, of our heart, is giving of our substance, isn't it? The Lord says, my son, give me thine heart. And to give of our heart is to give of what he asks of our heart. Not what we delight to give, but what he has said. It's the same in terms of our worship. We believe in what we call the regulative principle. So if the Lord says something with regards to worship, that we do. And here it is quite clear that it is well established at the close of the Old Testament that tithes were in practice. Now this is something that is confirmed in the New Testament as well. If you Turn with me just for a moment, and we'll, we'll see in a moment how the Macedonian church, in, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and uh, the passage there, and then we're going to turn in a moment to some words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll see here for a moment in... 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, look at verse 1. And this, by the way, people gave tithes. We read there in Malachi, didn't we, of the storehouse, to bring into the storehouse. 2 Corinthians 9, 1, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Archaea was ready a year ago, that is, in their giving, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest happily, if they of Macedonia come with me, and find you unprepared. We, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready. And that's the gift that they are preparing to send. Of course, there was the need in the church in Jerusalem. The Macedonian church gave very liberally 
Now notice the application. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And what I'm pointing out there is the direct connection between the giving and the Lord's blessing. If you sow sparingly, you shall reap sparingly from the Lord. Notice, every man, according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly. Now this, by the way, what we're dealing with here is a collection. Sometimes we might take up an offering for our brethren in Kenya or somewhere else. And here was a specific need. And they were to give from their heart. But if they sowed in this sparingly, they would reap sparingly in their lives. Somehow God would affect them. They would not be blessed. And we read, So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now it's important that we put that in context of a specific need, not the tithe so much. But I'm trying to make the connection between how there is a blessing from the Lord, and uh, we're not one of these health and wealth charismatic churches that push this matter. We're not trying to establish it. I'm simply trying to be faithful to the text and explain to us what God's Word is saying here. If a man does not give liberally from the heart, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord will not bless that man. And you notice what follows. For God loveth a cheerful giver, and God, notice, is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, those who have been liberal givers have always found that the Lord has always caused them to abound. And they've never been short. They've given cheerfully from the heart. Now, a tenth, we've read there in Malachi, is what the scriptures speak of in terms of our regular giving to the Lord. Whether somebody was a priest or a Levite or a member of the Israelite community or the church, this was the norm. Everyone gave a tithe. And it seems to be something that was very clearly understood right from the beginning, like many things. For example, it's the same with sacrifice in the Old Testament, isn't it? We don't read of a specific commandment right there in the book of Genesis, do we? Chapter 4. Remember when Cain and Abel offered sacrifice to the Lord? There was not, and I grant you, if you search the Scriptures, there was not at all a commandment to give a sacrifice. But God did say, because we are told that Abel offered by faith. If you just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, it says there, when Abel offered his sacrifice, it says, Hebrews 11 verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now what does that mean by faith? Was it just something that he, he dreamt up in his mind? No. The scriptures say, faith cometh by hearing. So God must have told him. In fact, we know there, right in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, there was, was there not an animal slain and coverings made for our first parents. And there, probably the first death, the first sacrifice. And Cain and Abel were taught, no doubt, by Adam and Eve, that this is the only acceptable approach to God. But we don't read it in the Scriptures. But it was a given. What Abel did, he did by faith. God spoke to him. There are many things that are clearly set out. For instance, we think of the Sabbath. We know in Genesis 
Chapter 2, don't we? It says there, another ordinance God gave. What was it? The Sabbath day. Remember, we're told that in six days God made everything. If you just turn there, Genesis 2, 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Now notice verse 3, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So there was already a principle, there was a setting apart. Here is the Sabbath day, and God blessed it. It was a day of rest. And that the Sabbath was established right there before the fall in Eden, and it was practiced. And uh, yet much, not much is said about it until you get really to Exodus chapter 16, where we have the children going through the wilderness. They are leaving Egypt now, and they are in the desert, and they are beginning to groan and complain. And now we read of the Sabbath, and they haven't even got to Mount Sinai yet. The Ten Commandments haven't been given. So Exodus 16, 22, And it came to pass on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. Why? Because that's what they were told. So that on the seventh, they would rest. Two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath, Unto the Lord. Why? Because it was in practice already. The Sabbath was in practice right from creation. Genesis chapter 2. And then, it's interesting, you come to Exodus 20, when God is giving the law. And remember how the mountain quaked and God spake and the people trembled. And... Uh, the Ten Commandments are given. And by the way, you don't read of anybody scratching their head and thinking, oh, these are new laws, because they knew these laws. We're told in Romans 2, 14 and 15, that the law of God is written on the heart. And nobody here is scratching their head and saying, oh, by the way, we didn't know about the Sabbath. Why did they tremble? They trembled because they knew, even at this point, they were already breakers of the law. Exodus 20, verse 8, we read, The law's been given there upon Mount Sinai. And how does it begin? Remember the Sabbath day. God doesn't even announce, by the way, I'm going to introduce the Sabbath, because it was already introduced. The people already had to obey it in Exodus 16 as they collected twice as much on the sixth day. So they knew, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So these principles are set in the word of God already. And the people, as I said, trembled because they knew they hadn't kept the law. And then immediately after the law, there's the law of sacrifice, the law of the altar, straight after that law. And that is to remind them that there would be a sacrifice for sin, all pointing to Christ. Now, coming back to the subject of tithes, this is an Old Testament practice, very clearly, set forth even by Abraham. Do you remember that well-known passage there in Genesis 14? As uh, Abraham went out to rescue Lot in the plains, and uh, when he came back, there was Melchizedek, of which Paul says to the Hebrews, you just turn there to Genesis 14. He says, I, I want to tell you about this Melchizedek, but some of you, he says, in effect, you ought to be a, a lot more mature than you are now. You're just little spiritual infants. And sadly, there are many Christians like that who have been Christians supposedly for years and can't grasp the deep things of God. And that's very sad. Well, Melchizedek, notice how Abraham gave him tithes. Or, sorry, yes, 
Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. It's interesting, isn't it? The bread and the wine. We think of our Lord Jesus, the one who came after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him, notice, tithes of all. So this is a very clear principle. Even Abraham followed. And we notice here, the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine. This is this ungodly king. Lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, and so on. So, Abram here gives this king, Melchizedek, his tithes. And then later on we have the scene, don't we, of Jacob. He's left, and he's now on the run, going on his way to Laban, his uncle. And he's there at Bethel, and he sees that ladder that night. And the Lord speaks to him, and he sees angels ascending and descending upon that ladder, which we're told in John's Gospel is Christ. He that bridges heaven and earth. And uh, he named the place Bethel, the house of God. And there, it was right there, if you just turn to Genesis 28, verse 19, it says he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And it says, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. At this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that thou shalt give me. Now notice, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So again, the practice, the principle is there, the tenth part. And it was hallowed, and it was used later on, we know in the temple, we know in Leviticus, how a tithe was taken from the people. Leviticus 27, verse 30, we read, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. The tithe, the tenth. They had to bring in the first fruits, which are the Lord's. And then again in Numbers 18, we see how it was used in the service of the temple and for the priests. Numbers 18, 26. Thus speak unto the Levites and say unto them, When ye take of the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then shall ye offer up and heave offering of it, for the Lord, even a tenth part of the tithe. So this is continuing. This was commanded throughout for the service of the temple, for the upkeep of the priests, the Levites, and so on. And then much later on in the days of godly King Hezekiah, when there was reform in the land, this is one of the things he, he put back into order and was to be practiced again there in Second. Chronicles 31, verse 4, we read, Moreover, he commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites, that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. As soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits. Again, that's the tithe of the corn and the wine and so on. So coming back here, even at the close of the Old Testament, and God has to indict the people with this, a curse will come upon you again. 
which remember was part of the, the commitment in Deuteronomy 28 that the people honor the Lord with the tithes. And then the Lord says again, he, he, he says to the people, will a man rob God? And they say, how? He says, with tithes and offerings. But there are some Christians, as we come to our chapter here now, 1 Corinthians 9, there are some Christians that say, well, now we're in the New Testament. This does not apply, they say. But I'd like to challenge that position quite clearly, that a tithe does remain. If you turn with me to Matthew 23, and you notice there, in verse 23, the Lord Jesus mentions it when he abrades the Pharisees. And he says, just give you two verses here. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now it's important we stop there for a moment and notice very carefully what he goes on to say, how he comments this on this. Notice what he says, these ought ye have done, to have done, and not to leave the other undone. He didn't turn around and say, well, by the way, here I am now, and now we're in the New Testament. There's no more tithes. He says, you ought to have done these things. The problem is you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. They were scrupulous in their tithe giving, and that's commended. But they neglected. What are the weightier matters? Judgment, mercy, faith. They were heartless when it came to men. They were legalists. In the right sense, they kept the law with regards to their tithes, and the Lord Jesus says, you ought to have done these things, but you've not done these other. You see there? If things had changed, the Lord would have just said, well, by the way, we're in the New Testament now, and uh, you don't have to submit to these things. Remember what he said, I've not come to abolish the law. So he's reminding us here, and by the way, there is no commandment in all of the New Testament telling us that tithes no longer apply to the believer. In fact, you read of the Macedonians, they gave abundantly more even what they had, more than their tithes. Something else, if you just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And uh, by the way, I, I said we'd mention the storehouse, which is spoken of, the Lord says there in Malachi, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And I want you to notice what the apostles says here about the storehouse. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection. Now again, this is this little preposition because they're asking questions when he uses this word now concerning. The, the Greek word there, peri, he's replying to a question that came to him by the delegation of men. And they also wrote to him. Now concerning the collection for the saints, he says, as I have given order... To the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. When? Upon the first day of the week. Because that's when the church began to meet. You know, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they began to meet on the first day of the week. And this was the practice. The Lord of the Sabbath has the right to change, to move it to a new day. This is what we read of in Psalm 116. This is the day that the Lord has made. It's the Lord's Day Sabbath. And I remind you of Hebrews 4 verse 9 in the marginal reading there. There remaineth a sabbatismos, a Sabbath keeping for the Lord's people. 
So there, notice, upon the first of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. That is to bring it, just as there in Malachi 3.10, to the storehouse. Lay by it and put it in store. They were to bring it to the church. And there's a reason for that. Because there were needs. We know from Acts chapter 6, when the first deacons were called. And it was their responsibility. The early apostles acted as the sort of elders and ministers. And uh, they said it's not right that we should be tending to the tables and tending to the needs of these women. We should be giving ourselves to prayer and fasting and the preaching of the word. We need to appoint godly men who will oversee this business of distributing to the needs of the women who were in need. And so they were to lay aside in store for what? For the support of the, mission, the, 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 the ministry or any cause of the church. And so where we have it there in Malachi 3.10, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And there's a reason for that. We should be of one mind, one spirit as a church, and we're told, aren't we, in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. And we ought to be thinking, uh, how, can, who can we support? So I'm all in favor of this as we work together as a body of Christ and we support the right work and we can be guided by others. And of course, as, as a church, we all have a say, don't we? We sit down and we discuss in our members' meetings who we're going to support, why, if there's a problem, why not? And those things are hurt. Two are better than one, aren't they not? As Solomon tells us. And you notice, looking as we read here, as God hath prospered him. In other words, in proportion to that tenth, to that tithe, as God has prospered that particular man, so he ought to give. Why? So that there be no gatherings when I come. That's the whole reason. And on the first day of the week, this was the practice. Bring it into the storehouse. And again, it's a reminder there, we read that verse, don't we, every Lord's Day here. When we take up the offering, how on the first day of the week, we continue on in that practice as a church. And that's only right that we do so. We're following on in this apostolic order. And it's a reminder that that first day of the week needs to be continued as a church here. I, I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it, there are, there are some Christians, they say they're Christians, but this keeping of the Lord's Day seems to have gone out the window. It seems to be non-existent to them. And it's, it's to the blight of the church. And it's, it's a wonder that the churches today are so weak. Not only are they they're not feeding upon the word of God, but they're not supporting in the work. How can a church um, go forward if there's no regular support for the work? I'm thankful for those who are very, very faithful in this church and who do give from the heart. But those who don't, friends, the word of God is so clear that we must keep the day. Let's just turn there quickly. Hebrews 4 verse 7. Notice there, we read, Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if ye will hear his voice, he is speaking about rest. Remember how some of them didn't enter into the promised land, rest? And uh, the word used here many times is the word catapausis, where we get the word pause from. For if Jesus, and by the way, the word there, Jesus, if you look in your marginal re reading there, it says Joshua, because Yeshua is a shortened or longer, elongated uh, same name. It's just Jesus and Joshua, the same word. For if Jesus had given them rest, and I suppose you could say in, in the spiritual sense, Christ was leading them, but it was Joshua, wasn't it, that took them in the promised land. Ultimately, Christ was leading then would he not afterward have spoken of another day 
And what is that day? There remaineth therefore a rest. If you look at your TBS marginal reading, it there says sabbatismos, a Sabbath keeping to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now sadly, there are so many Christians who are working in jobs that are not acts of mercy, piety, and necessity. Doctors, emergency services. Those are right jobs to hold because we have a need. If somebody has a heart attack, we are meant to preserve life. But if it's not a, a job that requires uh, we be there on the Lord's day, we better find another job. I don't believe that the Lord gives jobs on the Lord's day. Why would he take somebody from the house of God, which is the appointed means of blessing, isn't it? Faith cometh by hearing. And the person starving their soul, no wonder they have such a poor heart in their giving. And it's on that day that we bring, after our labors of that week, we bring in our, what the Lord has enabled us to give, we bring it in and we bring it in with joy. And we thank the Lord and we have a blessed day in his presence. That's how it ought to be. And we're reminded, aren't we, that this world's coming to an end. Can't take things with us. We're very quickly gone. As I said, in Acts 6, we have those who were appointed as deacons to rightly appropriate uh, those givings to the daily menstruation of the woman, the widows who were neglected. And in all of this, the Lord is to be honored. And so I want us to pick up now, we come to the text. Let's just come briefly in the little time that we have. We won't have, just want to set out some principles this evening with regards to this giving. That it is, again, it's not stopped in the New Testament, but it continues. There's no uh, annulling of it. There's no voiding of it. The tithe giving in the New Testament, as we've seen from the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, these things ought ye to do. Now, if you look at chapter 9 here, verse 1, Think of what we've just been looking at in the last two chapters. Paul is finished speaking on the subject of the fact that we're not our own. Even in our marriages, even our body, the man does not have power over his own body, the wife has. And the same with the wife, the husband. And even if you're single, your body now is the Lord's. And you're not free to use your singleness as you wish. Now, on the basis of responsibility. They have a responsibility to Paul. Do they not? Because he is part of that body and they are indebted to him. Look how he begins. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Now, to be an apostle, you had to be a witness to his resurrection. And you had to be called by the Lord Jesus. And he was. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus, wasn't he? When the Lord struck him down and said to him that he would be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And here now this church has been established at Corinth. They wouldn't be here had the Lord not have called him and commissioned him. Had he not labored Remember in Acts 18 how there was great terror in that city of Corinth. How he came up against so much opposition. And how the Lord spoke to him at night and said, don't fear, Paul. I have many people in this place. And Paul labored there 18 months, a year and a half. And what did he say? I sowed. Apollos watered. But it was God that gave the increase. Paul was a laborer here. 
And he was truly commissioned by the Lord as an apostle. And there were many who were questioning his apostleship, questioning his authority. He says, are ye not my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. It should be clear, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. You are proof of it. The fact that this church is saying, in effect, is continuing on, and there are people saved here, I planted. Apollos watered. We're all laborers. It was Paul in Corinth, and then Apollos, who's with him even now, they were involved in the ministry of the word. He preached the gospel, and uh, even now, they have sent a delegation of men to him to ask him questions, and he's providing the answers, isn't he? Of course, God is at work in the apostle, but he's still connected to them. And they are so indebted to him. And yet, as he will say, the more I love you, the less I am loved. Well, this apostle was being questioned, it is believed, by some who perhaps didn't even want to support him. We know Paul did make tents, and uh, he wouldn't lay it upon this church. It was his right to receive help, wasn't it? So he says, notice in verse 3, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Now notice how he tackles this. Have we not power or authority to eat and drink? Of course we do. We've labored. We've labored for your sakes in spiritual things. He will say, have we not right to receive of the material things from you? We have and then he, he moves to a different subject. Remember, he's been speaking about marriage earlier. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as of the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? Again, this is a reminder, Peter was married. The only thing that Peter has succeeded, or, or the Pope has succeeded Peter in, is that he has denied Christ. Peter had a wife. Peter had a family. And Paul is reminding them here, have we not power? Have we not authority to have a family? Is it not my right as a man, as a laborer in the gospel? Yes. Or only I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? He says no. Now I want you to notice as we draw to a close, he uses two illustrations that we need to take to heart here. The first is the illustration of a soldier going to war. But the soldier is not given any weapons, clothing, or any pay, or any food, or anything. And he is a soldier. Notice, who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? I mean, he's saying, do you really realistically expect that a soldier would go to war without the support of his king and government? No. Well, of course, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? We know the answer. Nobody. In the same way, Paul will say to Timothy, to endure as a soldier. And that's what the minister's work is. It's a hard work. And there's a spiritual battle. There are stern faces sometimes the minister has to, pray, to, to face in the preaching of the word. People who don't like it. And we have to be bold in our preaching. Gentle, yet bold. It's a hard work. Remember he reminded the Thessalonians, not all men have faith. Please pray for us. Not all men have faith. It's not an easy work. Think of all Paul endured. Nearly stoned to death at Lystra, Derby. Minister has a hard work. He has to soldier on in prayer. Sometimes has to get up in the middle of the night. 
write down things that he's been thinking, even while he's been sleeping. He's woken up, the thoughts come, he's got to write down. Read that book, read this. Pray for this soul, pray for that soul. It's a hard work. Our warfare is spiritual. It's a hard work. The devil will seek to attack. Other men who would even call themselves ministers try and attack the minister's work. People slander you, badmouth you. It's a hard work. And then, of course, like you, the devil's always on our back. Never gives us rest. And then he gives the illustration, notice in 7b, of a farmer eating of his own tillage, eating of his own produce. He says, who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? He says, come on, be realistic. Who, what farmer doesn't eat even of his own fruit? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? He says, even, come on, common sense tells you. We've labored. Surely. Then he shows from Scripture how God has made this rule. It's not by Paul. He's not just using analogy here, but he's, now he's going to take us to Scripture. He's going to take us to Deuteronomy. Notice what he says. I say these things as a man. Say I these things, I beg your pardon, as a man. Or saith not the law, that's the law of God, the same also. He says, I'm speaking as a man. I've used illustrations. But what does God's word say? What does the law say? Notice what he says. For. Here's the reason. Because it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And he says, doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of this hope. Now the verse he's quoting from is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, where it says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when it treadeth out the corn. And uh, by the way, this is not the first time or the only time that Paul quotes this verse. In 1 Timothy 5, he uses it again. He says, let the elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17, that rule be well, well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now notice what he says, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox, that treadeth out the corn. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, quoting that verse again, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. This just reminds us that sometimes in the scriptures, it's like the Proverbs, they are dark sayings. You know, they have a deeper meaning than some people might like to think. And I say that on the authority of the Apostle Paul, who by the Spirit has written this, and he's applying the law of Moses. But yet, you see, there'll be some people who just read it on a surface level. And they don't understand because they're not spiritual. Are you saying, my friend, Paul is not spiritual? Paul is. And there are many things that are written that we may not understand, but we will come to understand. The apostle explains that there is a principle in Scripture to interpreting sometimes things on the very surface have a deeper meaning. That thou shalt not muzzle the ox when it treadeth out the corn. That's not just for ox. How much more is a man than an ox, for goodness sake? It's not just for the ox. I mean, you wouldn't treat your ox like that, would you? 
You wouldn't not feed it. So he says, how much more men? There's another verse, maybe you've never heard of it. Proverbs 14.4 Where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. Sometimes it can be very messy in a church. And that's because the ox has been laboring. And people's feathers can be rather ruffled. The crib is clean where there are no oxen. And I'm just using the same principle that the apostle has. You know, it's, it, you can sit in a church where it's easy come, easy go. But the oxen hasn't been working. And people haven't been challenged. Would you really want to be in a church like that? Where people aren't challenged? Well, you might as well be going to hell then. The Word of God does challenge us, doesn't it? Look what he says in drawn application. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Spiritual things are worth far more, aren't they? Things that we have, they come and go. The things that are spiritual are forever. You have a never-dying soul. Your body is just here for a little while. But the soul lives on, my friend, forever. That soul made in the image of God. So he says, what does he say? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, have we not used this power, but suffer all things? He says, I'm not going to use this. Just like in the last chapter. Remember the man, he's, he's got... He, know, he knows an idol is nothing. And yet he's not going to use his liberty to destroy his brother, is he? Same here. Paul's saying the same thing. I have a liberty, but I love your soul, he says. I want you to come and I want you to see. And what did the Lord Jesus say? It's more blessed to give than to receive, isn't it? Now, when we give, we should give as unto the Lord. I think there have perhaps been very few sermons that I've given on tithing. I don't ever wish to make it my hobby horse, but it is according to the Lord's word. Such an important thing, isn't it? Because he has said that there will be blessing. I will open up the storehouse to such that you will never be able to contain. But if you don't, if you withhold your hand, the man will be cursed. What a man finds, he sows, he reaps. I close with one last chapter, Galatians 6. Again, it's touching on the subject. But let every man prove his own work. Verse 4. Galatians 6, 4. But let every man prove his own work. and Then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate or give unto him that teacheth in all good things. And then he says this, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he reap also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And then he says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them which are of the household of faith. You see, where he says, 
Let him, verse 6, that is taught in the word, communicate. That word, communicate there, is to, to render, to give unto him that teacheth in all good things. It's only right. Now, there are those who would say, well, we don't agree with the support of full-time ministry. We don't agree with a full-time pastor. We agree with the brethren idea of elders and nobody is to be paid full-time in the work. Well, that goes completely against what Paul says. Those who particularly labor in the word. And then I remind you that in Revelation, to each of the seven churches, the letter is given to the angel of the church. It's not literally an angel, but a messenger of the church. Now, who would that be? Somebody with wings that stands in the pulpit? No, the messenger who brings the word of God by the Spirit of God. And we will have to give an account of the things I say and things I don't say. We are so thankful for the help and that heart that the Lord has given, that you give to him. Ultimately, we're giving to the Lord, aren't we, in our tithes and in all that we do. Whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. Whether you eat, you drink, whatever it is, remember it's for God. If you're doing it for man, anything in the church, you're always going to be disappointed. Setting up the chairs, you think, oh, he, she hasn't shown up today. It doesn't matter. The Lord's here. That's all that matters. You're doing it for the Lord. You keep doing it for people, you're going to be angry at them. The Lord sees even a cup of cold water given in his name to the least of the saints. You do everything for the Lord. Amen.